you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we will be closing off chapter 11. Uh, last week, you will recall, we looked at Jesus's coming into the temple. Uh, where he cleansed the temple, and last week we showed how that cleansing of the temple was really a public uh, display of Christ's judgment, specifically on the leaders in Israel. Well, now, as we are going to see in our passage, and all the way to chapter 12, verse 34, that public denouncement of the leaders in Israel is going to cause all of these leaders to come out and do battle with Christ really have a battle of authority with Jesus all the way up to chapter 12, verse 34. And really what's going to happen is Jesus is going to uphold his own authority and destroy the authority of the leaders through their back and forth question and answer. So that at the end of verse 34, Mark will tell us that after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So from chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 34, there's going to be this battle of authority. Jesus is going to show his true godly authority, and it's going to cause Mark to say and summarize that after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And then that will naturally lead into Mark chapter 13, where Jesus will explicitly prophesy of the destruction of the temple which will take place less than 40 years later in the year 70 A.D. Uh, But we will get to that more when we get to chapter 13. But I just wanted to say that brief note that for the next few weeks, we're going to see sort of this battle between Jesus and his authority and the false false authority in Israel. Uh, So with that uh, introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, beginning in chapter 11 verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things things. The grass withers in the flower phase, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, uh, we do pray that you would do a work on our hearts, on our minds, and on our souls now as we sit under your word, both read and preached. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would conform us more and more into the image of your Son, and that we would leave this place loving Jesus more than when we first came in. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Here in chapter 11, verse 27 through 33, we really get the first of Jesus' encounters uh, with the Jewish authorities, as I mentioned earlier. Really, what we have here is round one of several battles that will take place all the way up into chapter 12. And this encounter comes from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. It's interesting. You can see that there's a threat from these Jewish authorities by the, the, the note that we will see throughout chapter 12 that it is Herodians, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, elders, all the different uh, groups that make up the leadership of Israel coming out from the woodwork to go and to do battle with Christ after this public demonstration of judgment on the leadership in Israel through the cleansing of the temple. But here in round one, with this battle of authority, we have the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And in verse 28, they approach him and ask, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you such authority? Now, Christ has come, as we said last week, really in the spirit of what we called last week an Old Testament prophet. Uh, He essentially prophesies against the temple and its authorities uh, by quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11 in verse 17 when he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And this comes after he has overturned the tables of the money changers and overturned the tables of where the pigeons were sold. So we saw this public demonstration of judgment against the leaders in Israel who had implemented this marketplace within the court of the Gentiles, within the temple precincts. So he has come and has publicly denounced the leaders of Israel. And here you really have the leaders of Israel asking the question, who does this guy think that he is? Who is this no-name, this man from Nazareth? Who does he think that he is using this public demonstration of judgment against us, the leaders in the temple? Who does he think he is in challenging the authorities within Israel? And we see Jesus' response to these chief priests, scribes, and elders uh, in verse 29. I will ask you one question, Jesus says. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, Jesus is here using a pretty impressive tactic. Here are the leaders of Israel seeking to put pressure on Jesus, asking him where his authority is derived from. And Jesus essentially turns the tables on these Jewish authorities And he puts the pressure on them to answer the question concerning John the Baptist. Uh, Now remember, John the Baptist was, as we have already noted in our unison reading of Scripture in Malachi 4, the forerunner of Christ. He was the one, he was the Elijah that was to come, as we read in the very last chapter of the Old Testament, who was to prepare the way for Messiah. For the day of the Lord. And as the forerunner of Christ, what we see from John the Baptist is that he came with a baptism of repentance. Remember Malachi 4, what we read earlier, that he was to turn the Lord's people toward God. Really, repentance, the understanding of repentance is a turning away from sin towards God. 
So John the Baptist, in fulfillment of Malachi 4, gives a baptism of repentance. Penitent sinners are to come, turn from their sin to God, and in that way be prepared for Christ's coming. And to reject the forerunner, you reject the one he claims. You reject the one he prepares the way for. Really, what John represents is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And to reject the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ is to reject Christ himself. You reject John, and you reject Christ. Think for a moment of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. There in that parable, you have this unrighteous man who ends up in hell due to his unrighteousness. And while he's in hell, he calls out to Abraham and he says, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Here, John the Baptist, representing the last of the great Old Testament prophets, if these chief priests, elders, and scribes don't claim the godly authority invested to John, then they will not, like the rich man, bow down to the divine authority of Jesus Christ. To reject the Old Testament prophecies is to reject Christ himself. These leaders aren't prepared for Christ's answer to their question because they have not listened to the one who was called to prepare them for it. And so they get no answer from Jesus. And so in verse 31 through 32, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, what do they do? They sort of huddle up. They get together and they, and they discuss their next move. Really, as Mark shows us, they are in a bind. If they say that John's authority comes from heaven, then Jesus will say, why didn't you believe in him? But if they say it didn't come from heaven, then they will have an uprising from the people because the people believed that he was a true prophet. And so they are unable to answer Jesus. Here they scheme, they huddle up, and the best answer they can come up with is, I don't know. They are unable to answer Jesus. And so Jesus refuses to answer them. Really, I think what is on display here is the difference between authority that comes from man versus an authority that comes from God. Here are authoritative leaders within Israel whose authority was to come from God and his word. Yet what do we see here in this passage? It is that their authority at the end of the day was based on man. They fear an uprising from the people, not because the people are right, which they are. John the Baptist was a true prophet but because at the end of the day, their authority is derived from the people. It is derived from man and not from God. 
They fear their authority would be in jeopardy if they said that John didn't come from God. They fear an uprising from man. It's interesting to note the similarities between the leaders here of Israel and Pilate who will end up having Christ crucified. Why does Pilate have Christ crucified? Because he is fearful of an uprising from the people. He sees his power that is derived from man put in jeopardy if he does not have Jesus put to death. And so here, these outwardly zealous Jewish authorities really, at the end of the day, are no different than pagan Pilate and the Roman emperors who invested all their authority in man. On the outside, much like the temple, as we saw last week, these leaders look pious. They look like godly men bearing fruit. But when you get close, when you start to talk to them, you see that they are spiritually fruitless. They appear to have the sanction from God to lead his people, but here their encounter with Christ shows that their leadership did not rest in God and his word. It rested in man. If the people come against them, their authority is destroyed. Their influence is done. It's why Herod must kill John. It's why the leaders of Israel and Rome must kill Jesus because they threaten their authority and influence that comes from man. Just think for a moment of the contrast between John and Jesus and these leaders in Israel. John and Jesus, whose authority does come from heaven, who speak the authoritative word of God, they are victims certainly of an uprising among the people. And they are ultimately put to death for resting on the authority of God. But the authority that comes from man, it huddles up. It gets together to scheme at the best creative answers to give in order to hang on to that fleeting man-centered glory just a little bit longer. And so what I want us to see for the remainder of our day Uh, for our time today is really three principles that we find that come from an authority derived from man and not from God. First, authority that comes from man brings a lack of proper order. Authority that comes from man brings a lack of proper order. Notice the way the chief priests, scribes, and elders approach Jesus, Uh, not only here but throughout the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels. They essentially come and demand answers from the Christ, the very Messiah they have been anticipating, the very Son of God. They demand, they command answers from Jesus. When Jesus is before the high priest, right before his crucifixion, he is slapped in the face because he dare answer in what they deem to be a disrespectful way to the chief priests. These leaders in Israel have this backward, twisted notion that they are Christ's authority and he must answer to them. It's true even today, isn't it? That those who gain their power and influence by the things of this world demand God to answer them. God and Christ and his word are so often put on the stand, even in many Christian circles today. 
And God and his word must answer us in the way that we desire. We look around today and we see the advancement of mankind, and I'll admit I see it, and it is quite impressive. We see medical advancements. We see technological advancements. There is sheer optimism in the progression of man and man's authority over this world and what we are able to create seems every week when I read the news, there is always some sort of news story about the fact that civilization might be a reality soon enough on Mars. Not only is this world our oyster, but soon enough other worlds and other planets will be our oyster. God is going to tell me that I'm a sinner in need of grace and that my only hope is found in Christ. No, no, no. God doesn't tell me. I tell God. And so we put God on the stand. Our sheer optimism in man and our ingenuity and the progression of mankind and all of our optimism, we put God on the stand. And we bark at him to explain himself, to explain why he does what he does, how he could dare contradict me and my authority. And so the proper order of things is inverted. The proper order of things is reversed. The creator must now answer to the created. The potter must now answer to that which the potter has formed. The molder must answer to that which is molded. The proper order of things is inverted. It is reversed. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, what we learn here from Jesus is that God owes us absolutely nothing. He owes us no answers. And if we lose sight of that in our Christian walk, what will happen is we will be constantly frustrated by the providences of God, continually barking at him and demanding him to give us answers. But God does not answer to us. We answer to God. The creator does not answer to the created. The created must answer to God. And he owes us no answers. Yet in the grace and mercy of God, he has given us his full and final answer in the face of his son. But if we, like these leaders, fail to see that God's authority and his final word is seen in his son, we will be like them and bark and demand at God to give us answers. We answer to God. He does not answer to us. Second, authority from man brings a lack of conviction. Authority from man brings a lack of conviction. Notice the way these leaders are unable to answer a very direct and pointed question. Here are the leaders of Israel who hated Jesus and hated John really with a passion that they will have them both killed at the end of the day. Yet they are not held to this belief by a strong conviction. They are held to this belief because their popularity among the people is being jeopardized. If it were by strong conviction, they would be able to answer the question. But they have no conviction. They have no fear of God. They have only fear of man. 
And time and time again, what we see throughout human history is that with fear of man comes a waxing and waning when it comes to your beliefs. Now, of course, the perfect example of this is politicians. Never ceases to amaze me. You watch a politician and his views suddenly change when the polls seem to suggest something different. And that politician will spin whatever he says in order to fit what popular opinion is. But lest we think this only takes place in the world of politics, it is strong even now within church doors today. Also, Christians, as popular opinion sways toward a particular bent, we sway with it. And we are driven to and fro, as Paul says, by every wave and wind of doctrine, by every wave and wind of popular opinion never ceases to amaze me how quick, quickly people will change their minds concerning things of Scripture because of what popular opinion holds. And the reason being is because their authority is not from God. Their authority at the end of the day is found in man. Jesus really here is exposing these leaders as nothing more than cowards. They talk a big game. They are filled with supposed righteous indignation, but the moment they are put to the test, the crowds determine their answer, not their convictions, not their beliefs, but the popular opinion surrounding them. But when your authority is God and God alone, you are able, like John, you are able, like Jesus, to stand strong on your convictions when the world calls you to account. Now, of course, throughout church history, we have numerous examples of Christians who are convicted by the authority of God that is found in his word. And there are many, many examples that are extremely inspiring. We think of Polycarp, the first century church father and and disciple of John, when called to deny Christ in the face of death at the ripe old age of 86. He said those famous words, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Patrick Hamilton, the first Protestant martyr in Scotland in 1528 facing the stake said, I will not deny my confession for awe of your fire. I will rather be content that my body burn in this fire than my soul should burn in the fire of hell for denying the same. Why such conviction? Why such courage in the face of death itself? Because these are men and these are women who stood strong on the authority that comes from God and not from man. If our authority at the end of the day is man, we will wax and wane when it comes to our beliefs. We will be driven to and fro by the wave and wind of popular opinion. But if our authority is God and God alone, we will stand strong, even in the face of death. Third and finally, authority from man brings a lack of contemplation. It brings a lack of contemplation. Here are leaders who have seen the miracles of Christ, who have witnessed the people holding up John and Jesus as being men from God. 
They have had countless encounters with the wisdom of Jesus, with the knowledge that Jesus has coming from Scripture. All of this should have led to their contemplation of God's word. All of this should have led to their contemplation of their own sin before a holy and righteous God and how they have perverted the temple, the house of the Lord. I mean, really, ladies, let, let, let's, let's think about it for a second. Brothers and sisters, does, does, do, do the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of Israel really need Jesus to tell them that making the court of the Gentiles a marketplace is wrong? Isn't that so obvious? And isn't it so often what we think when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus' encounters with these leaders in Israel and, and we ask the question, how can they be so dim? How can they be so spiritually dull? We saw a few weeks back, many weeks back, in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark where they attribute the power of Jesus in healing a man to that of Satan. And we say to ourselves, Really? Why? How can they do such things? Why are they so spiritually dim? Why are they so spiritually dull? It is because their authority at the end of the day comes from man. Their livelihood and self-worth comes from man and their influence and their power over them. And the miracles and the teachings and the wisdom is not contemplated, mulled over, immersed in, saturated in. They don't go back to scripture. They don't go back to the drawing board and consider who God is. And perhaps they've gotten him wrong. Perhaps they are sinners before a holy and righteous God. No. Rather, it hardens them and causes them to hate Jesus and to deny his person and his work. Really, nothing will cause a lack of contemplation in the things of God more than a man-centered approach to life. We live today in really what is a perverse, man-centered world. And this man-centered approach to life takes on many forms, and we could look at many different forms, but I want to focus on the one form that I think is so prominent today, and that is our need to be constantly entertained. Man cannot allow for one moment of boredom in our culture today, for one moment of silence. Man must be constantly entertained via social media, via smartphones, television, etc., etc. Our man-centered culture today doesn't allow for a moment of self-contemplation before a holy God so that we can do, as Calvin famously said, know ourselves so that we therefore know God and know God so that we can know thyself. The famous French philosopher Blaise Pascal in the 17th century asked the question, why do kings have jesters? Why do kings have these jesters that follow them around that are really their closest companion, always there to entertain them? Pascal says because the jester prevents the king from thinking about the one issue he really needs to face up to, which is death. He has the whole kingdom in his hands. 
He has everything at his beck and call, yet his closest companion, the one that he holds most dear, is a jester, the, ones who, the one whose role and job it is to entertain him. He must be constantly entertained because the truth of who he is and who God is terrifies him. And so the jester becomes his greatest companion, much like our iPhones, much like our entertainment today becomes our greatest companion. We really live in a world full of jesters, constantly entertaining us, constantly distracting us from who we are and who God is in the face of his son. We, like the leaders of Israel, have become dim to deep spiritual truths, incapable of thinking on deep spiritual matters because they aren't practical and they don't serve my immediate need. If, it, if, it, it's, if it's going to if it's going to cost me more than five minutes to comprehend it, it must not be important. Hence the reason I think the doctrine of Trinity of the Trinity has become out of style in our 21st century church because it takes some mulling over, some contemplation to grasp it. But if it takes me a long time in order to grasp it, it must not be important. And as a result, like the false leaders, we become dim spiritually dull. Brothers and sisters, in our fast-paced, man-centered culture, we must learn to press the pause button from time to time, to contemplate, to swim in, to saturate, to immerse ourselves in the word of God and see who we truly are in the face of him and in the face of his son so that we will bow the knee to the proper authority, which is not found in man, but found in God, in the face of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ, who has all the authority invested in him, to be that one that John the Baptist prepared the way for. But, oh, Father, how often we fail to contemplate your word and the deep truths that we find in the deposit of your final revelation found in your Son. Teach us, we pray, O oh Lord, to press the pause button in our fast-paced life so that we might truly know you and, in turn, know ourselves and know ourselves fully and finally and completely united to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.